This is William Friedkin. I wrote the script for Cruising and directed it. And the film was actually most influenced by a series of murders and body parts that were being discovered in the West River of Manhattan. And these body parts were floating up or being found by tugboat captains as they were uh, sort of passing by uh, the city of Manhattan. And guys would turn up body parts, sometimes a loose arm or a loose leg. Often um, the body parts were contained inside of a plastic bag. And the idea that these undiscovered murders were taking place mostly on the west side of New York and mostly around where the leather bars were on Little West Washington Street and West 12th Street gave me the idea that it would be an interesting background for a murder mystery to be set against the leather bars. And so sometime in 1978 or 79, I started to write the script. The gentleman on the left there is an actual New York City Police Department detective. His name is Randy Jurgensen. And Randy, as uh, an undercover detective, was sent into the world of the leather bars because he resembled most of the people who were murdered. And so he was sent in to try and attract the killer. And that story of Randy's actually, um, it got to me. And what he went through, the difficult time he had, is what led me to go ahead and develop cruising. She ain't gonna make a fool out of me. Takes the kids and goes to Florida to see his sister. Leaves me a note. Ten years. They're all scumbags. What? They're all scumbags. Who? All of them. Better off. Just try the two cops in this scene are, uh, their dialogue is based on an incident, again, that actually occurred during patrol of the West Side. And the attitude that was displayed by these two particular uh, officers uh, is almost verbatim. Uh, from interviews that I did and from information that Randy Jurgensen brought me about how the police were dealing with the leather bars. Guys, Christ, what's happening? Hey, girls, you working? You buying? No, honey, I ain't buying. Hey, what is that? You break your ass, you fall down on those high heels. The two characters here represent a kind of uh, dual sexuality, and they were hustlers that uh, were clearly men, but who dressed vaguely like women. And there were hustlers of all sexual variety at that time in that area. And the two actors who um, portray these characters are, of course, just actors, but their understanding of what went on in that world, their dialogue, the attitude that they have toward the cops is the way it was in the streets at that time. You remind me of a fellow I used to know. He used to be a coke sucker. <laughs> Everything was filmed on location. This scene in the police car had been told to me by 
two of the actual hustlers who had to go through this. Move your ass. Get up here. And where this scene is located is right across the street from, I would say, the most notorious of the leather bars at that time. And it was in the meatpacking district. And in the basement of one of these buildings that you now see, where this character is entering, and I filmed inside the club, not with union extras at all, but with the people who were the regular patrons of the club. It was clearly a very heavy uh, leather bar. And the activities that took place down there are what actually took place when I filmed. I really didn't give any direction to the people in these scenes. I just asked them to do their thing and let me film it, and let me put into this scene the um, characters, the actors who had the leading roles. But all of the, what you would call people um, in a scene like this are background extras, and they're usually from the Screen Extras Guild. The people that you're seeing now were the regular patrons of the club. And I had to indeed go to the fellow who was the head of a particular family to get permission to film in the bars. And then when I got permission, I had to get further permission from the guys who manage them in order to be able to film there. Do I qualify? I hate cigarettes. Oh, really? Now, I'm told that the bars no longer exist, at least not where they were at the time of the film, which was 1979. They may have moved, I'm not sure about that, but what occurred right after the filming of Cruising was the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic. I never made it with a Martian before. All of the murder scenes that take place in the film, I don't know how many there are, three or four, they are all based on actual murders that took place at that time that were widely reported in the newspapers. And I fictionalize them, of course. The characters are fictional, the situations are fictional, but they are based on actual occurrences that took place. And I had interviewed a number of people who were very much involved with this world, as well as the police officers who were, you know, trying to fight a losing battle in their attempt to at least contain the rampant drug use that existed at that time and the sort of 
casual sex that many believe led to HIV and the AIDS epidemic. The character that you can barely see who is um, leaning against the wall in the dark glasses, he's the same character that you saw enter the club. But we didn't change any of the decor inside the club. It was um, as shown. We did no art direction to the club. We just shot it as it was. And this first murder scene that takes place in the hotel was based on one of the grislier murders that occurred. Now, at that time, I, I want to be very straightforward about this. The background of the leather bars, the so-called um, gay world that is portrayed in this film, is really in my mind, simply a unique background to a detective story, to a murder mystery. There is no intention, there was no intention to make any comment about gay life at all. This was a, a sociological phenomenon that was occurring that was getting more and more attention both in mainstream newspapers, but especially in counterculture papers like the Village Voice, where the killings and the body parts floating around were all widely reported in the press. And so there was a lot of pressure from certain members of the gay community against cruising at that time, but not all. The guys who went to the leather bars and the guys who understood that lifestyle or even people who knew nothing about the lifestyle, many of them were in great support of cruising, but there were open and hostile demonstrations throughout the filming uh, by people who didn't understand it. And I get it. I know why these demonstrations took place. This was at the very beginning of the gay rights movement. And there were many members of the gay rights movement who were fighting for the political rights and freedom for the gay lifestyle, who felt that cruising was not the best foot forward for gay rights. And so there were these, as I say, very hostile demonstrations against it by people who were concerned that there would be a perception that the gay lifestyle led to murder. And I, I was not suggesting that at all. And of course, there was a link between a film I had made earlier called The Exorcist and one of the killers that's portrayed in the film. There's a character who appears in The Exorcist who actually uh, was a ra an assistant to the head of radiology at NYU Medical Center, and he had been charged with some of these murders. And I saw his picture in the paper one day, and I contacted his lawyer. He was being held at Rikers Island awaiting trial, and I called his lawyer and asked him if he would uh, speak to me. 
and he said, okay, and I went down and I met with him at Rikers Island, and he talked to me a little bit about what he had been accused of. He didn't tell me whether he was guilty or innocent of any of the crimes, and he was one of the main ideas that led me to make cruising. The investigating detective is played by Paul Sorvino on the left, and the uh, medical examiner at the morgue on the right is Barton Heyman, who played uh, a doctor in The Exorcist. And this was the second film I made with Barton Heyman, who was a wonderful New York actor. And I had worked with um, Sorvino in the past as well on The Brinks Job. And, uh, both of these actors are really as, as good as it gets. They, they were wonderful to work with, and, and they contributed so much uh, on their own to their roles. I'd say it matches the other killing pretty close, close enough. Heyman has uh, passed away, uh, unfortunately. Paul is, of course, very much with us. I don't see him anymore, because he lives somewhere on the East Coast, and uh, I live on the West Coast, and the twain doesn't often meet, but I have great respect for Paul. Six ways from Sunday. Didn't you work uptown with him? Work uptown with him, man? No. I don't work with This is the character who played one of the male hustlers in the scene that you previously saw. Uh, and again, a very convincing young New York stage actor, and his name is Gene Davis. I haven't seen much of Gene in recent years, but one of the things that I like to see happen in the films I make are that the characters, the actors become inseparable from their roles, and he does. The two detectives in the background are Sonny Grasso and Randy Jurgensen, actual members of the New York Police Department, uh, Grasso was one of the famous French Connection cops, and he and Jurgensen were boyhood friends and partners for many years, and they worked with me on this film as technical advisors. And this guy, Simone, he made me give him hair right in his radio car. Take your foot off the table. You're full of shit. I swear to cry. In this particular scene, the hustler, who I believe I called, yes, he's called Da Vinci, in the film, no reference to the great Leonardo, but uh, he's telling Detective Edelson, that, uh, played by Paul Sorvino, that uh, he's been getting a rough time from the cops who patrol the West Side. Otherwise, you don't come around here with stories like that. Listen, man, you need me just as much as I need you. Take a hike. Son of a bitch. When we first see Al Pacino, who plays a character called Steve Burns, who is a young, just a young police recruit when the film starts, he's given this assignment by Edels, Captain Edelson, played by Paul Sorvino, who's head of the major case squad, and he's given the assignment that Randy Jurgensen had been given some years before. 
and that is to go into the leather bars as one of the members, as one of the patrons of the bars, in order to see if he can attract the killer. Because of his physical appearance only, the description of the characters who were murdered in this most recent outbreak of killings all have a similar appearance, which is what Sorvino explains to Al Pacino in this scene. And Pacino decides to take this assignment because he knows it will lead to uh, almost immediate promotion from the police academy. It will get him a gold shield. It will move him up as a detective a lot faster than if he just went through the ranks and, um, you know, just did the normal duties of a police recruit. And so there is a sense that the Burns character does this more out of a sense of ambition, really, and, and kind of a personal um, sense of achievement than that he's dedicated to finding a killer. Among all the detectives I met, and especially on, in, involved with all the major cases and the special cases, there was this same tremendous sense of trying to move up in the department, as well as a sense of adventure. The opportunity that Captain Edelson is presenting to young Steve Burns is, is one that few recruits out of the police academy get, and that's to leap right into a major case and try and become involved in making that case and breaking the case. Yeah, I love it. We see Burns with his girlfriend or fiance, who's played by Karen Allen. And it's obvious that they're in a very close-knit, romantic relationship. But she has no idea what he's doing. And he has no way to really tell her what his assignment is. Not because of any sense of secrecy about it, but he just can't really find the words. And it is dangerous. She knows that he's entering a phase of his life and their life together that's going to make their, their relationship more difficult, that's going to, in fact, be dangerous for him. And so this was a common problem with people who went undercover to try and break major cases. Often it broke up their relationships, their marriages, their duty to be good fathers and good husbands. And there's a point in this scene when Karen Allen mentions something just casually about Pacino's father or Burns's father having called and left him a message. And for some unexplained reason, Burns reacts to this, and it's underlined with a chord of music, which I don't explain. And I, and I have to say at this point that cruising is more about 
raising questions and giving answers. In this sequence, Pacino is taking up residence in the West Village of Manhattan, where he's about to embark on another life, on a second life. And he takes the name John Forbes, and he moves into an apartment so that he can be closely involved with an area and a community that um, had basically become largely a, a gay area. And um, in a very naive way, Burns moves into this apartment and tries to live a life that is something he probably knew very little about before he took the assignment. He's got to dress different. He has to have a different reaction. And what you see as in the course of the film is that his own personality is very much at odds with the character that he's asked to portray in The Leather Bars. His own personality is sort of withdrawn and alone. And now he is forced to interact with a group of people that are from a completely different lifestyle. And the first person he meets is his roommate, who's played by Don Scardino. And Don Scardino is a very fine New York actor and now director. He appeared in Godspell, the original production of Godspell. And he's become a wonderful theatrical director. But here he plays a character called Ted Bailey, who happens to be gay, but of course nothing is, is made of that except that he is Burns's or John Forbes's next-door neighbor. And very quickly he strikes up a friendship with Forbes and becomes in a way... Uh, the key to the door for Forbes to take his first steps into this new undercover world. Now, Bailey has no idea that the Pacino character, Burns, or Forbes, as he calls himself, is an undercover detective. These scenes represent the beginning of Burns's attempt to what would you say, fit into the neighborhood. But my roommate works steadily, so we get by. What's your roommate doing? And so they first go to a, a neighborhood cafe where we learn a little bit more about Bailey's life, the fact that he lives with a, a dancer who's on the road often called Gregory Milanese, and that he's a playwright. He's trying to write plays and trying to make his mark in the theater. And of course, the, For Bur the Burns character, or the Forbes character, has no relation, really, to any of this. Gay bar in town. I'm scared to death of cruising myself. I'm gonna get that guy. Cops gonna get him. Cops? Now, I can't give you any backstory about these two characters, because they basically, when I started doing my research into the cruising murders, 
I had met several people who came to mind that influenced the characters that I wrote. It came out of a, a snatch of overheard conversation or someone I met who, in one of the police stations who was giving evidence or characters that I met in the bars before I set out to film this story. But while they're based on people and based on dialogue that I had heard directly or overheard, I still can't tell you too much about um, their stories before we see them in the film. This scene represents the first night that John Forbes goes out and tries to mingle among the crowds in the bars. And as far as he's concerned, it's like entering another planet, another world. And he has to mix in. He has to make certain contacts. He has to put himself out there in the hopes that he will attract the person who's been doing the killings in this neighborhood. And what he does really is just go into several bars and have a drink and have a smoke and make himself uh, available. Excuse me, could I ask you about these? What about them? What are they for? Like That's Powers Booth, who plays the handkerchief salesman, and this was his first role in a feature film. He's since then had a very distinguished career as an actor, and at the time that I'm doing this commentary, he has a very big role as the vice president in the television series 24. But he's become a really excellent actor, and the dress code of those handkerchiefs, as he explains it, is exactly what it was in terms of the symbolic meaning of each of the colors when worn. So now Pacino or Forbes is getting more and more into this world, putting on a little eye makeup, putting himself into some of the uh, tougher situations. again in an attempt to ingratiate himself with the members of these clubs. He's being looked over by some of the members, and at one point, you see one of the killers, played by Richard Cox, and Joe Spinell, who plays one of the police officers that you saw earlier in the police car. So now, with just one shot, I've suggested that this police officer has another life and is also a patron of the bars. It's at this point that Pacino is confronted by one of the regulars at the bar, and he's confronted on, on the basis of the fact that he had a yellow handkerchief in his left pocket, which signifies a certain sexual connotation that at this time he's completely unable to fulfill. You see the, the condition of most of the guys in the bars and so Pacino 
or Forbes has to get himself pumped up to um, look like he belongs there. He has to dress like the other members of the club. He has to be involved in, in scenes that he may never have even thought of, let alone experienced in the past. And he has to be open to any and all sexual approaches. And this sequence was filmed in Central Park in an area called the Ramble, which was a place where uh, many gay assignations would take place on a regular basis every evening. And again, there were bodies found in the Ramble from time to time. And I'm not going to suggest that they had to do with the gay lifestyle, but there were these bodies found in this area. Again, you see the Joe Spinell character who is the police officer in the patrol car in one of the early scenes. But to get back to my point, this film was made in those places where the actual murders had taken place. The solution to these murders to this day escapes me. I've said earlier that it raises more questions than it provides answers, this film. I'm convinced that there is more than one killer, but that often the police would take somebody and that they felt was guilty of at least one of the crimes and try to get them to confess to many others. And in, in this scene, Burns meets Captain Edelson not at the first precinct, not where that police headquarters was at that time, but in a pool hall where Edelson hangs out and where he can talk about certain aspects of the case while it appears to be nothing but a social contact. I ask the questions. And this is where Forbes goes to get any information that Edelson may have or to get his next assignment. Back in Central Park, we see the character who appears to be the one who entered the club in one of the first scenes of the picture, and he appears to be the character who murdered uh, one of the victims at the hotel. I'm not going to say whether this is the same character or not, but this begins a thread in the film that indicates that there may have been several murderers involved in these similar cases. Because the idea is here that this character, who was possibly the murderer in the hotel scene, is picking up his next victim. And they go off into a deeper, more private section of the ramble for sexual purposes, where the sex was done openly, but the area was off limits to anyone who went there for other than sexual contact.
in this particular scene, I'll refer to him as the killer, goes off into a very quiet section of the park, leading his victim toward an assignation place where they plan to have sex. The killer you saw in the hotel scene is now suddenly left alone. His intended victim or sexual partner has disappeared, and he's alone. But we now have a sense that this man was probably the killer we saw at the hotel. But this is what happens to him. He hears the voice that we heard in the earlier killing. And he becomes the film's second victim. <laughs> Officer Burns is coming home to his new apartment after a night at the clubs. He goes back to the apartment of his fiancée and has very aggressive sex with her. And you get the feeling from just seeing her face and not his that the sex is driven by something other than just his passion for her. And the next morning, he has started to become more uncommunicative with her, while at the same time telling her, reaching out to her, telling her how much he loves her and cares about her. But she can see something in his eyes and sense something in his attitude that's disturbing to her. She has no idea what his assignment is but she's very concerned about him and about their relationship, even as he professes his deep love. In his other life, John Forbes is told by Ted Bailey that Bailey's having problems with his roommate, the dancer Gregory Milanese, and that he's going to have to take a regular job and not going to be able to finish the play he's been working on. And really, in this, at this point, Forbes has started to like Bailey as a person and to become concerned about Bailey and his state of mind. And a friendship develops between the two men that has little or nothing to do with the assignment that Burns is on. And mostly in this sequence, Burns just listens while Bailey talks to him about 
his own personal problems and his own concerns about the relationship he's in. You get a sense in watching this scene that Burns or Forbes is relating to Bailey just as a fellow human being and not as somebody who is, in a way, leading him into this other life. Burns' character is counterfeit. Burns isn't the real thing. He's someone called John Forbes, who's pretending to be gay, who has no real sense of the gay life. Bailey is a young homosexual man. And what you see developing between them in this scene is just the genuine friendship of two people. Having little, if anything, to do with Burns's assignment or Forbes's identity. The FFA on the license plates is a real organization at the time, and that they had license plates like that. Now Burns himself goes into the club, and he comes in in a leather jacket and jeans, but this particular night was a theme night. It happened to be called Precinct Night, and everybody who came into the club at that time had to be dressed like a cop. And if you weren't dressed like a, a cop, either a motor cop or a, a traffic cop or some kind of a uniformed officer, you were called out. And while Burns has the look for an average night in the club, he's certainly not dressed for precinct night. And he is soon accosted by the managers of the club who ask him if he's a cop. Meaning, are you really a cop? Because don't you get it? This is precinct night. You're not dressed right. So you must be in here undercover. Now, if you know the iconography of the film and you know that Burns is undercover but pretending not to be but got the dress code wrong he has to just leave and then he's followed by a character called Skip Lee who we really see for the first time in the club and Lee becomes the next suspect the next possible murderer, but he follows Forbes and attempts to make contact with him in this scene. Now, before I made the film, I would go into the club and I went in on dress code nights. I had a dress the way the, the dress code called for. I remember having to strip down to my jockstrap and socks on jockstrap night and everyone else was in a jockstrap. And everyone else there had these incredible 
bodies. You know, they were really physically in great shape. And I was, and I was easily the ugliest guy in the room. Nobody hit on me. After a night at the club, um, Burns goes back to his fiancée. Uh, their lovemaking is more tender, but his mind is somewhere else. On the soundtrack, he hears the music and the sounds of the leather bars while his girlfriend is trying to pleasure him. And so again, he's living two lives, two lives in the same person, in the same body. And this is really what happened to detectives who, who went undercover in that kind of an assignment. The story moves around, in this case, to Madison Avenue, to the shop of a well-known dress designer. The character is, of course, fictional, Martino. And we see him leaving his shop with his assistant. And the assistant's played by Keith Prentice. Uh, Keith Prentice was a fine actor who was in Boys in the Band. He was in the original stage production and in my film of the Boys in the Band. And Keith died not long after we finished this film. But in any case, the character Martino Perry, who is the fashion designer, we see that he lives another life too. From the designer dress world of Madison Avenue to the peep shows of the 42nd Street area on the west side at that time where he goes for rough sex into, again, this place that actually existed at that time where men would meet in very small rooms to watch pornographic films and have sex. And what we see are the yearnings, the deep yearnings in the human heart that are not easily defined. My first thought was, why would a man like Martino, who is very much connected to a portion of the gay world, want to seek sex with strangers? Which took place in a very different um, portion of the gay world at that time. The partner that Martino has chosen will turn out to be death. The murderer in this scene, although it's very dimly lit, is not the same man who committed either of the other two murders. Apparently. But again, 
what I'm dealing with here is the way the identity of each of the characters moves by leaps and bounds through a variety of different personalities. This appears to be the same murder weapon that was used in the other murders. There are, in fact, many different characters involved with the cruising murders. And it's not clear which of those characters is in that peep show scene, although what unites them is what appears to be the same voice that the killer used in earlier scenes. The only thing in common the murderers have at this point is the voice. Don't ask me to explain that. This scene involves Pacino coming home after a night in the bars to his apartment where he overhears, because the walls are paper thin, an argument taking place next door between Ted Bailey and his lover, Gregory Milanese. They're having a lover's quarrel, and Pacino finds it disturbing to his peace of mind. The argument gets very heated, and the Forbes character has to leave. He can find no peace or solace, even in the loneliness of his own room. The chief of detectives calls Captain Edelson into his office to tell him there's been no progress made on solving the cruising murders, that the Democratic Convention is about to come into New York City, and if Captain Edelson can't make more progress in solving these crimes, He's going to be relieved and someone else will be put in his place. And Edelson, of course, knows that. That's the way the game is played. The police department needs to show to the public that they can solve these murders, that they are not helpless in the face of a crime wave. And so this puts the pressure on Edelson and his detectives to come up with at least a suspect. And at this point, a fingerprint is found on the coin that was put into the box at the peep show. And at this point in the film, the John Forbes character has become a part of the fabric of the club. He moves easily among them. They recognize him. Some of them hit on him. He's now one of them. He's made contact with the bartender who he talks to, not as an undercover detective, but as a patron. And he sees the various sexual activity that takes place around the club. And of course, 
I filmed all of these activities in their entirety. But all the other film that I shot has somehow disappeared. But in this moment, Forbes sees the Skip Lee character in an argument with another patron of the bar. And he asks the bartender about that character, because that's the guy who followed him the other night and tried to hit on him. And the bartender tells Forbes, stay away from that guy, he's trouble. I'm with someone. Aren't we all? Want to dance? We got a brief glimpse of the character known as Stuart Richards, played by Richard Cox who will figure prominently as a suspect as the scenes go on. And in this scene, which is a very erotic dance sequence that takes place in the club, we see Pacino taking little stabs of emyl nitrate that are in that handkerchief and getting himself into the same mental situation that all of the regular patrons of the bar get into where they are in a heightened state. And as they are in a heightened state, we see the Forbes character going deeper and deeper into his role as a serious member of this club. And as he is under the watchful eye of the Skip Lee character, makes eye contact with him in an attempt to perhaps lead Lee into thinking that he's ready to, for physical contact. In an unmarked patrol car where the film opened, We see Randy Jurgensen, who's playing a detective in the film, and John Forbes, played by Pacino, as Forbes tells him that he believes that the Skip Lee character is really a possible suspect. And so the detective makes contact the street hustler Da Vinci, played by Gene Davis, and asks him for any information he might have about Skip Lee. And the Da Vinci character tells him, yes, Skip Lee is a well-known guy around the clubs. And he also offers him another piece of information that overheard on the night of the murder in Central Park, someone was heard to be singing the phrase, who's here, I'm here, you're here, just before the murder occurred. Now that was a clue in one of the actual murder cases. Someone had overheard someone singing that kind of childish 
nursery rhyme kind of phrase that has no particular meaning that is understood, but that was just a facet of the murders, that that voice singing that little nursery rhyme refrain somehow is tied to the killings. And so a character here played by Ed O'Neill, who later went on to great fame in the television series Married with Children, playing a detective opposite the real detective, Randy Jurgensen, as they observe Skip Lee where he works in a steakhouse. And has access to the kind of knives that were used in the previous murder cases. They're steak knives, but they're rather common steak knives, but Skip Lee has access to them, as, and the coroner says to Edelson and his detectives that, yes, this could be the murder weapon. And so Captain Edelson gives John Forbes one of those knives and tells him, this is what you're looking for. This is probably the kind of murder weapon that the killer has used. And so Burns or Forbes decides to go with Skip Lee up to a place which was both a hotel and a bar. Come on, guys, let's get it going. They have um, on overtime. They're going up to the room where Forbes has lured Skip Lee with the promise of sex. Let's go to work. But two detectives, one played by Sonny Grasso in the foreground, who was one of the actual French Connection detectives, two detectives have the room wired. They have a microphone in the room so that they can overhear everything that takes place between John Forbes and Skip Lee. And they are prepared to break in on this situation if what they anticipate occurs, and that is sexual activity followed by an attempted murder. But as with most of the police equipment at that time, it doesn't work very well. And they're forced to assume that the situation has gotten out of hand. These two guys are up in the room alone, one an undercover police officer, the other a potential killer, and so they decide to move in on the scene. Very often this took place where the police would raid a situation that they thought was extremely dangerous, and they would find that, in fact, they had either arrived too soon or they had mistaken the situation. But at this point, the detectives have now decided they're going to move in on Skip Lee, and they're hoping to find that he's attempted to kill Burns. 
they find, in fact, that Burns is tied up, hogtied, in a situation similar to the murder at the hotel. But it comes out in the interrogation scene that Burns, or Forbes, lured Skip Lee to the room, not the other way around. And that Forbes asked Lee to tie him up, that Lee didn't really want to tie him up. So in this interrogation, the detectives pretend to be intimidating both Forbes and Lee, but they really want a confession from Lee. They have no evidence against Lee, but they do have this deep desire to help Captain Edelson break the case, and Lee is their nearest suspect. I'd like to point out that there is no added footage in this version of Cruising. There were 40 minutes that I had to cut, and those 40 minutes could not be found. But I also feel that the story as I intended it is totally complete. Although there are some open questions and very few answers, the film itself, the direction of the story, though ambiguous, is clear. So what we've done is we've retimed the visual look of the film using new digital equipment so that the, the print looks absolutely new and fresh. And we remastered the soundtrack so that the soundtrack will now be heard by you as if you were hearing it under modern conditions in a new motion picture theater or on your home system. But so we've remastered the image and remastered the sound while not adding any additional footage. I did add from time to time some visual transitions that were not in the original film. And the scenes in the leather bars are much more vivid than they were made to appear in the original theatrical release. So now the detectives are showing Lee pictures of the other victims, a number of whom, like Martino Perry there, that we've seen be murdered. If you look carefully and you go back to the Martino Perry scene, you will see that Skip Lee is actually leaving Perry's shop. And he confesses to the detectives in this scene that he was only in the shop to bring Perry some grass. But now, the jockstrap detective comes back in the room and slaps Lee, further confusing him and disorienting him. And now they confront him with what they believe is a knife that's similar to the murder weapon as the chief of detectives enters the room and watches what's going on. You were seen coming out of his store. It's rare that the chief of detectives would come in during an interrogation like this. But we've established the idea that he's really concerned about solving this case, that he's on a kind of a time limit, that the murders have to be uncovered before the arrival of the Democratic Convention into New York City. And so in this sequence, 
the detectives have decided to use whatever methods they can to wring a confession out of Skip Lee, whether he's guilty or not. And the threats that are brought against him are ones that we recognize from any number of other cases, both in this country and internationally. Prints don't match. Print on the court is different than the kids' print. But the detectives now find out that Skip Lee's prints don't really match the killer's prints in the peep show. And the chief of detectives realizes and is forced to tell his detectives that Skip Lee is the wrong guy and that the case against him is over. So the Steve Burns character has now been in this other world for a long time now. He hasn't seen his fiancée for what could be weeks. I didn't choose your key. He comes back to see her now, but he's a different person. She recognizes that. He can't talk to her about what he's doing. He can't express his feelings. There is a kind of sexual confusion that goes on in this circumstance. There is a sense that he has now begun to empathize not only with some of the victims, but with some of the people who have committed no crimes but have just been singled out as suspects by the Major case squad. Why don't you want me anymore? He's identified with the people he's met as human beings, not as killers, not as members of a minority, but simply as human beings. And he's supposed to be a cop. He's supposed to be a detective. He's supposed to be above emotional situations that can take his focus from, from what he's been sent to uncover. So the relationship that's most important to him with his fiancée, Nancy, has now reached a kind of irreparable breach. Steve? Forget it. Realizing it, Burns goes to another location, uptown in Manhattan, way uptown, the Bronx, to meet with Captain Edelson to tell him he doesn't think he can do this job. In a very poignant moment, he tells Edelson, who has picked him out for this job, who's given him this opportunity, 
that he thinks the police methods are too aggressive and that he can't see this assignment through. So we now see that the world that Captain Edelson has created for Burns is kind of coming apart itself. If Burns leaves as far out as it is that he might actually hook up with one of the killers or the killer, if Burns leaves this assignment, Edelson has nothing going in terms of breaking the case, and so he appeals to Burns as his partner to stay in there, to hang in there. I don't know. It's just... We see that Burns is emotionally overwrought, that he's hit a kind of breaking point, that it's one thing to be a detective in the streets running after someone who's fleeing the scene of a crime or someone who is clearly earmarked as a potential criminal. The psychology of this assignment is something he's just not ready for. And Edelson sees this too, but has nowhere else to go. The Burns character is his only hope of trying to come up with a lead. He gives him a, a set of pages from Columbia University from the yearbooks at Columbia University of a number of students with pictures of a number of students who were the students of one of the characters who was murdered, a college professor from Columbia University. And he gives Burns these yearbook photos of men who took classes from this college professor in the hope that Burns could possibly identify one of them as someone who he's seen in the leather bars. Burns studies the faces, not expecting to find anything that will pertain until finally he sees Stuart Richards, who we've seen only briefly in the club and who Burns has noticed as someone looking at him, studying him, and so Burns now calls the registrar and the head of admissions at Columbia to try and get information about Stuart Richards. Is he still a student there? Where does he live? In those days before 9-11, it was easy for the police or almost anyone to do something like this to contact a registrar and say, look, I'm a relative of this or that person. Can you tell me how to find them? Remember, cruising came out in 1980, and now this process would be impossible. But at that time, it was what you did. You had a lead, 
You could call a university or a business and get information on somebody. And now the story centers on Stuart Richards. He is a student of art and music at Columbia University. He lives in an apartment building in Columbia Heights. He does frequent the leather bars and the gay world. He was a student of one of the professors, of, of one of the victims who was a professor at Columbia University, who we've only heard talked about but have not actually seen him or seen his murder. In this scene, we see Stuart Richards in his apartment with his friend who lives down the hall, whose character is called Paul Gaines, played by the actor William Russ. And we see that Stuart is having problems with his father. He's asked his father for money, and his father hasn't responded. And we get a sense underneath what they're saying that Stuart has problems with his father, who we haven't met. But there's an echo of the problems that Stuart has and the problem that John Forbes or Steve Burns has with his own father. That's all I can tell you about that at this time. But the Burns character now begins to follow Stuart Richards on his way to and from school at Columbia. Burns is an omnipresent figure. He's decided to focus his efforts on this character, Stuart Richards, because he remembers having seen him in the club. And he now knows that Richards was a student of the professor from Columbia that was killed. And so this becomes an immediate link as Steve Burns focuses on Stuart Richards, virtually night and day. On this particular day, he watches as Richards finishes his physical routine and goes out, out into the park, into the ramble by day, the kind of gay assignation place. And Burns or Forbes is now openly following Richards, perhaps in an attempt to entice him or lure him into some sort of contact. And inevitably it comes about that Richards notices Burns for the first time. Perhaps Richards has also seen Burns somewhere before. And on another day, 
Burns watches as Richards leaves his apartment and Burns enters it by way of the fire escape. Burns breaks into Richard's apartment and looks around to see what, if anything, he can find that might tie Richard's to the killings. It's a rather open kind of surveillance, but if you take yourself back to 1980, this kind of an occurrence in a neighborhood would not often be particularly noticed. People would think that uh, someone had forgotten the key to their apartment and just entered by way of the fire escape. Perhaps it would be noticed by someone and maybe reported, which means that Burns has very little time to look around among Richard's personal things. There's a photograph of Richards is a boy with the top half torn off, the top half probably depicting his father, but Burns doesn't put that together with anything now. There are various bulletins from the school and university that don't give much of a hint as to Richards' personality. There's some art books with some disturbing drawings and paintings. He looks through his personal effects. He has to operate quickly because he doesn't know how long Richards will be away. But nothing that he sees seems to make any sense. Instinctively, he goes to Richard's closet where he finds the wardrobe of the leather bars. Well, okay, he knows that Richards frequents the leather bars. He's seen him. Covered by a pair of boots is a box full of what appear to be letters. All of the letters are unsent they're addressed and they're sealed, but they're unsent, all to the same man, Mr. John L. Richards in St. Louis, Missouri. Same address, same man, all of the letters unsent. Burns decides to open one of them, where he sees Richard's descriptions of various things he's observed in his life, where Richard seems to be appealing to this fellow John Richards for some kind of understanding. But he was, for some reason, never able to send these letters. And the letters are all addressed to his father. John L. Richards is his father, and there's a box of unsent letters. As, as Burns continues to follow Richards, now more openly, now allowing Richards to see 
that he is in fact in his life. And Richards notices him and is aware of his presence. What it means to Richards, we don't know at this point. It is perhaps a silent signal between two men who may be attracted to one another or to someone who may be attracted to Richards. Richards is thinking about this when he comes home into his apartment and in trying to fill the time and get his mind either on or off what the presence of this other person in his life means, he notices that his air conditioner has been tampered with. The air conditioner that Burns used to break into the apartment. So Richards now knows that someone has been in his apartment and he sees that someone across the street. Burns. But he doesn't know his name at this point. Now he goes to where his secrets are kept and he finds the box of unopened letters. Many of them have been opened. The neat way in which he's filed the letters has been breached and someone has now uncovered his secret for some reason. And that someone is this character that's been following him. He goes, in, he goes into the nearby park where he sees a well-dressed man sitting on a bench and he approaches this man and tries to talk to him. And we get the sense that this man is his father, John Richards from St. Louis, Missouri, who he's addressed the letters to but not sent. And now we see Stewart trying to talk to his father, to appeal to him, to get some sense of approval from his father. But none, none comes. The father only says to him, you know what you have to do. And that to Richards is a signal that he has to go out into his world and commit a violent act. The voice that he believes he hears is the voice of his father. But he realizes now that he's involved in what amounts to a showdown with this character who's been following him. And at this point in the film, both characters decide they have to meet face to face. They have to work out between them whatever it is that's going on. Richards now knows that Burns has been in his apartment and knows his secret. Burns has made contact with Richards and is about to go on to meet with him in what will turn out to be their first and final confrontation. But beforehand, he stops to perhaps say goodbye to Ted Bailey, but Bailey's not there. His roommate, Greg Milanese, is there. He's come off the road where he's a Broadway dancer. And there's tension between them because Greg knows that Bailey has been fond 
of the John Forbes character. And it's clear that he feels threatened by Forbes and, and he therefore becomes aggressive towards him. Now, Forbes didn't come to this apartment for a confrontation, but there is Greg accusing him of having an affair with Greg's roommate, Ted. And this confrontation pushes certain buttons in Forbes, because Forbes has been gearing up for a confrontation with a man who's possibly a murderer. And so the aggression and tension has been building in him as well, and it takes very little to set it off. And he's now gearing himself up for what could be a life-threatening conflict. Greg's dislike of Forbes is real. He sees Forbes as a threat to his relationship with Ted. He opens the door to see if Forbes is there, and there is Forbes. And they get into a very brief but violent physical confrontation. And it's now possible that that knife that Greg holds and Greg's attitude makes him a suspect in the killings. Because it's Greg who threatens Forbes. Greg who urges Forbes to come at him with a suggestion that he'll kill him if he does. And so Forbes makes the long trip uptown for his final confrontation with Stuart Richards. Forbes is not clear as to whether Richards is a killer or not, but Richards knows that Forbes has been following him. And so on this particular evening, when Forbes goes to Richard's apartment building, he presses his button. The button indicating which room Richard's lives in, in a signal that he's waiting downstairs. And as he's about to press the button, Paul Gaines, Richard's roommate, leaves the building with another young man. So it is possible now that Gaines has recognized Forbes outside the building. If that were ever to come up, if Forbes were ever to be a suspect with regard to anything relating to Richards, there is the possibility that Paul Gaines has seen him outside that building. Richards accepts the challenge and comes out to meet Forbes. 
They stare across the road at one another like opposing gunfighters. And Richards leads him into a deserted area of the park around Morningside Heights, where Columbia University is. Forbes takes the bait and decides to confront Richards. He's not sure how. He's not sure what he'll do or what he'll say. But he finds quickly enough that Richards is waiting for him and whatever might take place. They're alone in a deserted park, probably after midnight in Morningside Heights. It's not clear who will make the first move. But Burns parades right in front of Richards and sits down on the bench next to him and makes a crude attempt at conversation. He asks him for a light. Those were the days before people could read, of course, and still smoked cigarettes. Now people have to decide whether they are going to read anything anymore or continue smoking and die. This is the first confrontation between the undercover cop and the potential killer. They face each other eye to eye and thus begins the slow courtship toward an end game. Forbes is trying to think through what he'll first say to Richards. Richards is waiting. And Forbes puts on his leather cap, Richards' leather cap, and he starts to sing the little refrain that was heard at the scene of two of the murders. Who's here? I'm here. You're here. Richards takes the bait. He gets it now. And he knows that whatever Forbes is pretending to be, he is probably somebody who's following him for a reason. He is possibly what we know him to be, an undercover detective. Burns, in his lack of investigative skill, has just let it all hang out. I know who you are. I know what you are. But he now pretends to want to go further into a more private place in the park, ostensibly for sex. It appears now that 
both men have agreed to have sex, but what they've really agreed to do is to have a physical confrontation. We're not sure at this point whether the confrontation is relating to sex or not. It appears that it is. They start to strip down. But it's Burns or Forbes who is trying to get Richards into a more vulnerable position where his clothes are off and where he's physically threatened to see what his reaction will be. The encounter is ostensibly about sex, but what it is about, more than anything, is the unmasking of the two men and which, no. where the power lies, which one will crack first. What happens in this scene is that when the threat is most apparent to Richards, he reaches down into his boot and pulls out what seems to be the murder weapon that's been used in the killings. But Burns also has a replica of that murder weapon that was given to him earlier by Captain Edelson as the actual murder weapon. Burns clearly was the aggressor. He entrapped Richards. In today's legal world, Richards could not even be tried because he was entrapped. He could be tried, but he w his case would probably be dismissed. In the hospital, Richards is confronted by Captain Edelson and Detective Burns, and he's offered the deal that I was told about by the suspect in the original cruising murders. If he confesses to several of these murders, the police department will recommend a reduced sentence for him. He'll spend only seven or eight years in prison instead of life imprisonment or even the death penalty. But Richards declines this offer, and in the voice of his father, or in the voice of the killer, he says, I didn't kill anyone. I never killed anyone. Edelson and Burns have heard this alter ego voice of Richards. And now Edelson tells Burns that he's grateful to him and that Burns is going to be Burns is going to be made a detective. He's going to move up in the world in the police hierarchy. He tells him he'll have to testify before a grand jury, and then he'll be cleared of any wrongdoing. And Burns thanks him for the opportunity, and now purposely mispronounces his name, as he did when they originally met, and picking up the bait. Captain Edelman. Edelstein. Edelson mispronounces his own name thus tightening the bond between them. The detectives now go back to Stuart Richards' apartment and collect his personal belongings. 
His friend Paul Gaines is there to help them understand Richards. And Gaines tells them that all of these letters addressed to Stuart Richards' father that were never mailed were never mailed because his father has been dead for 10 years. It's Gaines who gives the police that information, but they pay no attention to it. Richards has been writing to a father who's been dead for 10 years, seeking his approval, seeking his love, and he's been writing to a character who doesn't exist. Or that evening, a murder has taken place in the West Village. Captain Edelson arrives on the scene, and we see Officer DeSimone, played by Joe Spinell, who we've seen in both as a police officer in the patrol cars and in the leather bars. And DeSimone tells Edelson that the murder victim is named Ted Bailey. And this is, in fact, the apartment of Ted Bailey and Greg Milanese. And Bailey has now been brutally slaughtered by someone. Milanese isn't around. He would be an immediate suspect. Edelson notices DeSimone's badge. The name rings a bell. It's the name that the Da Vinci character was reaching for as the police officer who uh, made him give him sex in the patrol car. And DeSimone mentions that one of the next-door neighbors was named John Forbes. And only Edelson knows that John Forbes is, in fact, Steve Burns. They go back to have a last look at the body of Ted Bailey. Jesus Christ. And Edelson wonders if Forbes might have had anything to do with these murders. And once again, even though things change, they stay the same as someone else goes back into the club seeking the companionship of strangers. Steve Burns's fiance, Nancy, comes back to her apartment and she realizes that someone's in the apartment and is using the sink. And Burns has come back. He seems relieved. He seems as though the weight of the world is off of his shoulders now. He's finished this assignment. I need to talk to you. It's had a happy ending for him. Okay, let me just get this over. He's been promoted to detective, and he's suggesting that their lives can come back together and that they can be as they were. But even as he presents this attitude to Nancy, he realizes that he can never be as he was again. And she notices the leather jacket and the hat 
that he's worn in his other life that she's never seen before. As Burns comes to the realization that he's a different person now, and for some strange symbiotic reason, Nancy decides to simply try on the wardrobe. What is it? It's just a, a leather cap, a leather jacket. It's make-believe. As she's trying it on, she's wondering what Burns' reason for dressing in this way was. It's kind of attractive, looks good on her. And our final image of Burns is him wondering who in the hell he really is. This is William Friedkin, and you have been watching the remastered version of Cruising.